In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Long before that blockbuster hit, The Matrix, from decades ago, and the choice between realities and red and blue pills, a Polish author in the 1920s came up with a fictitious pill to escape reality in his novel entitled Instability. He called the pill the Murdy Bing Pill. In his futuristic work, a foreign army was threatening his homeland of Poland. The people, nervous and exhausted, didn't know what to do or where to turn. Should they fight? Should they retreat? Should they surrender? And in the midst of all of the confusion, in steps the leader of the foreign army with a perfect solution. He offers everyone in Poland a gift, the Murdy Bing pill. Whoever took it would become instantly serene and happy, and those pesky little Ideas about being invaded and enslaved would just melt away after one had taken the pill. Everyone in Poland did so in his novel, and as promised, the pill left each recipient without a care in the world about the present or even the future and bigger issues of what would happen after life and death. But eventually, those who took the Murdy Bing pill couldn't completely erase the past nor the present, and in the novel, they developed split personalities, and their end state was worse than where they began. In many ways, it's a cautionary tale. We are offered Murdy Bing pills in life at every single turn, every single day. They promise us distractions of hope and happiness and even harmony amidst all of these other things. New purchases and innovations that we just can't believe we've never lived without up to this point. The distractions of entertainment, news, social media, take your pick. Food, vacation, even leaders and organizations leave us with such promises. All of these things are mere distractions. The latest I've noticed, without making any commentary on it, was that as soon as All Hallows' Eve decorations came down in my neighborhood, before November even hit, uh, Christmas lights were up. We want to hope in something, we want to be distracted by something, and we're quick to digest the murdy being pills when we find them in life, because it's much easier to remain distracted than to confront reality or even the larger questions that loom in our hearts. And when we do so spiritually, there's actually a term for this down through the ages in the, in the annals of the church, it's called acedia. Acedia is a term that signifies the state of the soul when it's not just merely apathetic or slothful, but it's altogether uninterested and unengaged in spiritual matters. One priest put it this way, it's an inability to choose the good. It's an affliction of the soul that attacks desire and our desire toward the good, the ultimate good being God himself. I believe it's the temptation of our age, but it's not only not something that's just um, to our age itself, but is one that every single age must face and confront. We see it warned of in the whole of our scripture readings today in the coming day of the Lord, but the one in particular that I'd like for us to focus on is that from 1 Thessalonians we heard a few moments ago. So I'd invite you to open in your Bibles with me to that passage, or if you're in person, you can follow along on the screens. 
in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. But as you locate it, let's place this um, chapter and, more appropriately, this whole book in its proper context so that we understand um, where Paul is writing from. It's written, um, 1 Thessalonians, some 18 years, roughly, after Jesus' ascension into heaven. And that's significant because the recipients of this letter and Thessalonica believed that Jesus' return was imminent. It would come at any moment, perhaps and certainly in their lifetime. And so toward that end, they were actually worried they'd missed it, first and foremost. And Paul addresses that in his concluding remarks um, thereafter this passage. But in the waiting, it arose a myriad of other concerns as well. What do they do in the waiting? What do they do with those who have fallen asleep, as you heard last week, those who had passed from this life before Jesus returned? What does the meantime have in store? And with that, we pick up in chapter 5, verse 1. And it's there that Paul reminds the church in Thessalonica that he doesn't need to remind them of the seasons, for they themselves are anxious about the season they're in. And so he acknowledges that. But then he acknowledges, of course, something they should know, for they have been discipled and trained uh, in the words of Jesus, that the day of the Lord's return will indeed come swiftly, and it will come upon them unawares. Just as Jesus said, they do not know the day nor the hour, and so they should be prepared daily. It will come as a thief in the night, Paul writes. Despite the world around them that says peace and security, that digests the murdy being pills of life and um, quickly succumbs to the distractions around them, Paul reminds them not to get swept away, for that day of judgment will come unawares, and it will come unawares upon those who believe, but to the demise of those who do not. And while Paul addresses in other places how to handle those um, who do not know and who do need to receive the word of Jesus and the gospel in their lives, he's addressing here particularly the faithful, not the faithless. And so he continues in verse 4, if we press on, to see the call that they are called to live differently. One's life as a Christian should quite literally, as he puts it, be night and day different than the world around it. And he admonishes the church to wake up, to be alert, to be ready, to not get lulled into acedia through the murdy being pills that they consume or the ebb and flow of life around them, that they are called to be sober and to be watchful. And this call of Paul resonates not merely just through the halls of the church in Thessalonica, but it does through the halls of every church that reads it subsequently, and I pray in our own as well. Because we face a very different temptation than the church in Thessalonica. In many ways, the opposite. They were so concerned they'd miss the day of the Lord, Paul had to actually encourage them to keep the course and to recognize they won't miss it. Conversely, we believe the day of the Lord will come, but in the back of our minds, we don't really think it's going to come in our day, or at least not right now, like tomorrow. And so we put it on the back burner, and we go about life doing the things of life, and we may give it due attention on Sundays. We may point to it and carved out allotted moments in our day with Jesus. We may even um, tend to it a little more readily at seasons like Advent and Lent as we're about to approach an Advent. 
But in the back of our minds, we don't really think it might come by the close of today or before we wake up tomorrow. And so we get lost in the distractions of life. Perhaps we consume the murdy bean pills that assuage our desires. And it's quickly, easily happening that we can get derailed by any number of other things. And the danger is that we let the eternal be shaped by the here and now rather than letting the here and now be shaped by the eternal. And that's a very dangerous place to be. A.W. Terzer put it this way. In his own day, when these words were penned, I think they're just as true in our own. He said, the man of pseudo-faith will fight for his verbal creed, but flatly refuse to allow himself to get in a predicament where his future must depend upon that creed being true. He always provides himself with a secondary way of escape so that he'll have a way out if the roof caves in. What we need very badly these days is a company of Christians who are prepared to trust God as completely now as they know they must do at that last day. Amen to that. But how do we do that? How do we fight acedia? How do we push back against all that faces us in life? How do we shake that off and keep the end goal in sight? I believe we discover the answer and the antidote, if you will, back in verse 8. Paul reminds us of this triad of faith in uh, an image of armor, just as he does elsewhere in Ephesians. This triad of faith and love and hope that arm us against the daily assaults that come upon us and serve as the antidote, if you will, for the murdy being pills perhaps that we consume in the meantime. But notice, of course, that that triad is never in a vacuum. It's not just you and yourself or you and Jesus, but Paul reminds us in verse 11, therefore, encourage one another. We need one another to build one another up just as you're doing. And so he spurs them on towards that end to not allow themselves to get lost or disconnected in the meantime. Because the goal, my friends, is to not just reach that final day of the Lord's return, but to reach so in maturity, to not just be rejoined with Jesus, but to look more like Jesus when he returns. That is the grace of the here and now. And it only comes when we're first rooted in faith so deeply that it produces a love that isn't just that term and that word that the world kicks around so freely, a wishy-washy love that everything's just going to be okay, and if we just all get along, it'll be great. But it's something that comes from a biblical worldview that shapes the here and now, one that's self-sacrificial, as Jesus did, one that moves us to action in light of the hope that we profess, one that spurs us on as we keep our eyes so fixed on where we're headed. But that does not happen. It cannot happen when we get tossed to and fro by the things of this life, and we don't keep that in sight. Last week, as you can still hear, I'm getting over a bit of a sinus infection. I um, was trying to go through all the precautions, and I spent a little more time in front of the TV as a result than I normally do. And um, on the heels of the election, amidst all the tumult, amidst all the turmoil, amidst all the reaction, amidst all the research, amidst all that went into it, this thought occurred to me. What if believers put one modicum of that amount of research and effort and passion and focus in their faith 
the church would have a revival. I think that's what we need. And where we see the gaps that we want others to fix, the church would raise up and do it. We'd go back to the days, create hospitals, take in the orphans and widows. Let's do it. There's nothing that prevents us from it. And we can't expect that anything else or anyone else will do that other than the king of kings who we are mobilized under. It will not change unless we allow it to be so and revival starts with us. So brothers and sisters, stay awake, abide, remain in faith and love and hope. Let our hope of what is to come shape the here and now in a way that mobilizes us beyond Sundays Sundays really should be the place of celebration where we gather the body of the faithful to worship corporately because of all they've been out doing in the course of the week. So I believe as we move, hard to believe, this is the one-year mark since we became a parish. Where do we go? We had a lot of hopes and dreams. Um, Didn't expect that one year later um, I'd see roughly 40 of you on a Sunday with masks spaced out all across the sanctuary, but none of this catches God by surprise. And it shouldn't allow it to um, catch us by surprise and unawares. But rather, we in this season need to dig deep, to water the roots, to sink down deeper into God's word and prayer in ways that we have never been before. And when we do so, then we will be from a place more able and equipped to engage the world and all the issues that are around us. But that comes every single day with every single decision that you make to decide to open your email on Monday morning and pull out that Bible study that you get to look back at these readings, to jump on Zoom on Wednesday night and to engage in a conversation around it, or whatever it takes shape to be next month as we continue to adapt. Don't let the distractions of life push you away. For those of you worshiping remotely, I get that screen fatigue is a thing, and I know that it's not fun. But you do it all day for school and work, so do it for your own soul's health. For those of you in masks, I get it. I hate it too. I mean, I only demask so you can actually not hear me scratching around on a microphone on Sunday mornings, but I'm with you every other day of the week. And it's not fun. Nobody likes it. But you do it for work. You do it to go out to get groceries. You do it to other things. Do it for your own soul's health. Now is the time, more than ever, where the world needs the church. And if the church is divided, and the church is distracted, and the church is lulled by the murdy being pills of life, we are no heavenly good to the world around us. So battle Acedia, church. Rise above the distractions and the fatigue. Fix your eyes on the day of the Lord, and bring others in with you. Jesus is our hope. All else will pass, and we're called to be ready. So church, let revival begin with us and then spill over to the world around us. And take time to build one another up, to check in on one another as you've done, to continue in that and not grow weary of it. Because that's where true transformation is found, hope and joy. Remain connected, recommit, repivot, reevaluate your calendar in your week, and take time because the day is coming. What if it comes by the close of the day? What if it comes before we wake up tomorrow? Do not sleep as others do. Rather, let us keep awake and be sober for that day's return. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.